Hi, it's Jeremy Most speaking from uh, Grown Alchemist. I'm the founder here at Grown Alchemist. What I love about beauty, it doesn't only affect you physically, but it affects you emotionally. You can really have an impact on how you feel through the process of beauty. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Welcome to Beauty Is Your Business. I'm your co-host, Jessica Quick. Thank you so much for joining us. Super excited. My partner in crime, Denise, is back stateside. Welcome back, Denise. I am. I am back in the U.S., but I wish I was where our guest is right now. Welcome, Jeremy, all the way from Australia. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Okay, but before we go on, what part of Australia are you in? Melbourne, Australia. And it is a gorgeous sunny day here. We're just coming into spring and this is one of our first good days. Oh, lovely. Well, we are looking forward to talking with you. Denise and I this week have been buzzing about two topics that actually Grown Alchemist fits perfectly with. Our first is global brands and international expansion. So we're excited to jump into talking with you about international expansion and building a global brand, which Grown Alchemist has been doing for the past 20 plus years. And Denise's favorite subject. It is. It's my favorite subject because we talk to a lot of brand owners and founders about what their ultimate goal is. What is your ultimate goal? And many of them say, our goal is to you know, get acquired, to sell to a bigger company, to see our brand grow internationally and beyond what we had ever conceived it could be. So you've managed to do that, and we're excited to talk about that today. Well, I'm going to give you the boots and all, uncandid, unfiltered version. <laughs> Hope you're ready for it. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. That's what we're looking for. It helps our, our audience to really hear what it's like. So Jeremy, kind of starting from the beginning then, let's jump into you and your brother. You have left university, graduate. You are now in the United States. You're doing a lot of work with other global brands, product development and design work. Did you know from the beginning that you were going to design and develop a brand that you were going to sell? What was the beginning thoughts that you and your brother had? It was completely by accident. We actually created, we were asked by a client to actually look at, it's hard to believe, this new word called wellness back in the late 90s, early 2000s. We had no idea what it was. We were living in Miami. Miami was booming. We weren't living particularly well lives. We certainly were. I wouldn't have called us uh, pioneers at that point of health and wellness, that's for sure. And so it was really uh, in response to a client who just kind of was confused at as we all were, at what this new kind of impending market was going to be about. And there was a book that was emerging as a go-to first book in the space called Wellness, the Next Trillion Dollar Industry. And I think that's what sparked the interest from our client, the word trillion. So we got into it. We were really dumbfounded by the fact that a lot of what we were eating, consuming, putting on our bodies wasn't actually um, well, firstly, food wasn't natural. That was kind of weird. And then the second thing was, well, actually, when you go back to natural, there's this mechanism in the body that seems to just work better. And recognition is higher, utilization is higher, and this is just in food. And we started to transition that thinking into, well, what about skincare? What about topical? We went very broad. We looked at all sorts of things that affect 
us affect beauty from emotions to digestion, environment, all sorts of things. Came back and said, we feel like there's a fundamental moment here that we should be exploring. Client went, no, don't want to. This is too experimental. We think it could be a bit faddish, not interested. We went, okay, we haven't done a great job at convincing you. Give us a little more time. We'll convince you. So we went back, did some formulations, came back again. They said, I thought we said no. (laughs) So what do we do with this new thinking? And it was really hard to go back to doing things the way that we were doing them. So after a lot of procrastination, we made the decision to take the investment that we had made and try and make something of it. And that's when the idea of launching our own brand became real. And then it took us six years to actually materialize that from there. (laughs) Wow. So when people say, oh, an overnight success, you say, no, no, that's not the case. We didn't launch till 2008. We started in 2002 with this kind of, we are going to do this because we've spent a bunch of money that we want to recover. And then in 2008, we launched, but... It was still really early. You're right. This overnight success thing is, well, look, it took us, we were trying to educate people that natural wasn't just simple. And that was in 2008. That can actually be very sophisticated. And if you understand the science behind the body, it can do things that you've never thought were possible biologically. And so that was a really tough story. It was tough communication moment to get across to people. People were like, if it's not made in a lab, it's, you know, I mean, everything's made in a lab, but if it's not manufactured by man and synthetic, it probably doesn't have the technology. And so there was this underappreciation for the power of what you could actually achieve through nature and extract if you did it the right way. So that whole journey was for the first, gosh, forever. It felt like forever. I would say more than more than eight years. It wasn't really until about 2017, 18, that natural started to kind of shift. And then in 20, with COVID, people went, wow, there's this thing called immunity and resilience to disease. And how do you achieve that? And oh, if you're healthier, that you get better immunity and a bit better resilience, right? And so then the desire to understand more about the natural biological processes of the body and everything around that became a strong degree heightened. You know, we're talking a couple of years ago. It's not that long ago. Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting about kind of this story is when you start a brand in 2008, and then we have a big economy shift happening just a few years after that, you're launching in a time when, you know, the economy is not so good. And I'm curious about that. Plus, I'd like to know a little more about, you know, when you started your brand, what were your hopes and dreams of it? Was it to get into certain retailers? Or did you always have this goal of being acquired? The short answer to that is, no, we didn't have a goal of being acquired. I think we'd seen some brands get acquired and we were like, wow, that's pretty outrageous. But it wasn't a lot of acquisition. It wasn't a huge amount of acquisition going on in beauty back then. And I think for us, it was, we love beauty. We love the space. We think there is a real gap. We always had the saying that basically when, if you're going to create a brand, it's a promise. It's a promise to do something, to deliver something. It's almost like a moral contract that you've got with your customer. So how do you, you know, if you're going to enter a space, what are you going to do that's important and different that requires another brand, right? Essentially. (laughs) And that really fortified us against the times where you go, this is a disaster. What have we done? 
because you're not in it. You're in it because you believe in it. And I think that's so important. I get that there's opportunistic moments and celebrity brands and all sorts of other brands. Look, we're not that. I mean, goodness, we've been at this for 20 years. We've done a terrible job if we were trying to ramp it up to sell. <laughs> it's the short answer. The aspirations really was to create something that we love to do, that we believed in, and that earned money and paid our bills. And when it came to achieving that, in those days, it was all, there wasn't a dot com, right? So when we launched in 2008, you, you didn't have a website. No one had a website. Like maybe a few people had a digital brochure. Even then it was like, that's a luxury. And so everything was through retailers. You know, I'd say part of our initial success was our complete stupidity. I don't mean that in a, a light sense. We were completely ignorant of everything. So we created, we tipped in about a million dollars into the business to create a whole bunch of stock. In 2008, we had more than a million dollars worth of stock in the warehouse that we needed to turn into money because you had in those days, and even today, you have to create minimum volumes just to get something produced, right? And so we did the, our minimums, it gave us a lot of product. We had these fabulous spreadsheets around, this is what we're gonna sell, this is how we're gonna sell it. The magic calculations, the great cash flows, this was going to be a no-brainer. And then we met with retailer after retailer and they said, we love the idea, great, come back in a couple of years. And we went, excuse me, a couple, a couple of years? We don't, we don't have a couple of weeks, like we need to make money now. We got a team out there and we had hired a guy who was from one of the big companies and he took us on a journey like we were part of a huge company. The thing that he didn't appreciate is when you're not a huge company, retailers don't just go, oh, great let's put you on shelf. They go, are you going to be around tomorrow? And so we naively sent our product out to our biggest retailers, David Jones and Maya. We heard nothing and we were like, this is, maybe they didn't get it. So we sent some more out and we were sort of sitting around with a friend of ours who sold leather goods into David Jones. And we said to them, yeah, we just haven't heard back from the buyer. It's really weird. And they said, oh, you're not going to hear back for like a year, maybe two. Right. And then they get about 200 brand submissions a year and they take one. So I think you need another strategy. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. <laughs> like we are doomed. And so really it was like we were facing the wall. And at that point, completely out of the blue, the buyer for Maya reached out and said, come in for a 15 minute meeting. And we went, oh, thank goodness for that. So we came in, we sat in front of her. She had, we launched with initially, we chose 15 products that we would launch with try and keep it tight. She had the 15 products lined up. She had opened the hand cream. Everything else was as we sent it to her. And she said, look, I've only got about 10 minutes to go through this with you. We are keen to take you. We just need to work out integration back end. At this point, we were doing invoices on an Excel spreadsheet. She said, we need to EDI it. I said, yeah, no problem. I didn't have any idea what EDI was. And she said, we want to go national, so just walk us through your national strategy. We can do that at a later meeting. Yeah, so we'll work on first uh, launch volumes and let's get this thing rolling. And I was like, well, how do you know you want us? And this is what I actually said, which is the dumbest thing to say. How do you know you want us when you've opened up one product? Great question, by the way. Great question. <laughs> well, I was just like, how can you know, right? And she just said, oh, you don't get it. I buy boxes and I sell boxes. You sell product. And if your customer buys the box and doesn't come back, that's not my problem. That's your problem. And we're going to have a short relationship. So we will buy your stock. 
you've got three months to deliver. If you don't deliver in three months, we're going to have a separation conversation and you're going to get all the stock back. And I was like petrified at that point. It's like dating someone that doesn't really want to go out with you, right? Or was certainly not sure. And so every three months we met for the first year to have basically a breakup conversation and we sort of made it through and kind of muddled our way through. And then by the end of the first year, she said, our next meeting is in August. And that was six months away. And I was like, oh my gosh, we've just been given a six month window. And then shortly after that, David Jones, only because Maya had it, David Jones were interested in it, <laughs> which is our competitive. Of course, that's always the way it is there. I don't think they really cared. They just wanted to have what they had. And so we, we ended up launching in David Jones. And then we started to get a bit more traction and became what I'd call a, a micro business. It was very small still, but it was, and it was Australia, but it was, we were moving. Momentum sometimes is the, the thing that matters, right? Momentum does matter. And once you start the momentum, keeping the momentum is always a challenge, but just getting it launched and off the ground is a key part. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I only really come to appreciate momentum in the last, really in the last few years. There's a lot you can do to stop it. You've got to deliberately think about how to keep it. And I think it's completely underestimated. I think it's one of the key moments and momentum is one of the key moments. And I think sometimes um, there's a great quote by in a movie called Out of Africa where the lead character Meryl Streep, she's talking to one of her trusted advisors and and he's an African guy, and he says, you know, I think God made the world round so we don't get to see too far ahead. And I think that's kind of been our journey. If we knew what we were getting into, we never, ever would have started. We had a consultancy that was cash. It was fabulous. You didn't have to stock. You didn't have to cash flow. You didn't have to deal with returns, write-downs. I mean, there's so many crazy moments that we've had to learn that have taken us by surprise because we just didn't know. And if we had, I think we probably wouldn't have gone there. <laughs> you would have run the other way. <laughs> you would have run the other way. I mean, I remember that for the first Christmas packs that we sold and David Jones said, we've got a really great order for you for Christmas. It's fabulous. And we were like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So we manufactured to this great order. They called us up in about sort of second to third week of November and said, hey, we've earmarked you for Christmas write-downs if you would like to participate. And I was like, brilliant. And they said, look, we're just going to write down 20% sort of day before Christmas, day after Christmas, be part of the Boxing Day sales. That'll go to 30% if anything's left. You guys sold through pretty well. So, it, you know, it's not going to be a lot, but there are some kits that are going to be around by Christmas. I said, okay. They said, are you okay with that? So I leaned over to my brother who was working like literally on the bench next to me. And I said, are you okay to do some write downs? And he goes, ah, I don't think it's too big a brand erosion. I think we could do it. And I'm like, yeah, we're okay with it. She said, great, done. We get this invoice in January for about a uh, 120 grand. And I ring up the accounts department. I said, I think you've made a mistake. You've sent me an invoice. It's actually me that's supposed to be sending you the invoice. And she goes, no, that's for your write downs. And I'm like, what do you mean? We pay for the write downs? <laughs> we pay for the write downs? <laughs> Apparently so. So there was stuff like that that you learned you know, you should know. I mean, we should have known that. If we'd been in the industry on the buying side a bit more or the selling side, then I think we would have learned that model and know those things which most people knew. We had no idea. 
And retrospectively, I, you know, if I'd known the industry better, I would have probably still made the same decision. I just would have had it in my cash flow. Yeah, you would have planned for it um, appropriately. <laughs> a little, little bit. <laughs> That's always the case in our world as well. And where Denise and I here in the US and the clients and the brands that we work with, this is always the big question is when you know it, do you actually go do it? Or some of these things you just, you have to learn. And because of that, you are, you aren't afraid anymore because you didn't know. And that's some of it because we see great brands that just stop in their tracks because they do see too far ahead and they do know the industry too well and they know all the hurdles coming and that's enough to stop them. So it is a little bit of a blessing that you guys didn't know it and you just kept plowing ahead. What was the catalyst? What was the point where you looked at your brother, he looked at you and said, hey, acquisition might be a real thing on the table. Are we interested in this? What was the, because you could have kept going for another 20 years and obviously you're still at the helm and still building, but what was that catalyst? You know, we finally got to a position where the business was self-funding, we we're in a good spot. We had cash. We had some great retailers. We were building the market in what I would call a self, self-funding self manner. And we had to still be careful because you can blow a few million bucks pretty quickly if you're not careful. And then all of a sudden, your buffer goes away and you're back sort of on anchor watch, so to speak. And so we had a, a small investor who we had, it was really a strategic investor from quite early on who was based out of China and had made some great investments in some luxury brands. And they had a whole bunch of connections in China. We wouldn't, couldn't go into China because of animal testing. So we were sort of building a knowledge base out of China. It's so complex, that market. It's huge, but it's crazy, crazy complex. And there's all these other things that go on that are sort of relationship-based that you can't actually manufacture. So you're sort of sitting there going, how did that happen, right? Well, probably it happened because someone knew someone who knew someone and they made it happen. We had got in with them. They they were working. They had malls that they built, and a lot of their customers were LVMH customers like Prada and Gucci and all these kind of brands as well. They took a really small position. COVID hit. They kind of wanted to try and liquidate some of their external China assets to help fund some of the things they were doing outside of China because China put a freeze on a lot of capital. And COVID. And so nothing was going really out of China. Things were coming back, but nothing was going out. So they said, look, would you guys be interested in buying back our small shareholding? And we said, sure, we'll look at it 100%. That began a little conversation, which went to, well, do we, we'd given our dad a small amount of shares just as a mum and dad to say thanks for being mum and dad. And they're sort of hitting 80. So we were like, do you guys want to, do we roll this up into this little kind of bundle and get a new strategic investor? And they had sort of said, look, we will we will help you. We've enjoyed the journey. We'll help you regardless. We were like, great. Then it was like, well, do we get a new strategic investor that can really help us with some key markets like North America? And that began a conversation still very small minority, but maybe someone that was interesting. We put our feelers out and we got a lot of interest, but most of it was majority. And we said, no thanks. If we're going to sell a majority, then we're going to just sell everything. Like, I don't want to be part of something that you sort of see your vision erode. So we said, no, not interested. And then we also weren't that interested in selling everything because we felt like we've just, re I mean, I know we've been in it a lot longer than probably we probably commercially should be. We probably should have materialized something by now. 
but it was part of it was feeling like the market is really now just starting to be in our sweet spot. So why are we moving out of something that we love doing and what else are we going to do, right? <laughs> it really, we search more for minorities. We got a couple of little interesting ones, but they weren't, in, in our opinion, the right ones. So we were just thinking about maybe we acquire the shares ourselves and just kind of roll up. And then this guy called Sean Harrington came to us, who's the CEO of Alamis and sits on the board of L'Occitane. And he said, hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you guys. And we said, is it a majority conversation? Is it a complete buyout conversation? He said, it definitely would be a majority conversation. But hear me out. Now, this was all going through a capital raising company. So we were sort of getting, you know, the interpreted version. And at that point, we said it was near Christmas. It was like first week of December. And we said, look, we have a huge amount of respect for Sean Harrington. He's so well known in the industry. He's done legendary things. Incredible operator. No, thanks. I just didn't want to get in a room with someone where there was an expectation. It's like going on a date where you're not ready and the person wants to marry and you're like, I don't want to get married. And so let's just not do the date because <laughs> someone's going to get hurt. So we just politely said, look, there's a lot going on right now. It's not what we're into. Thank you so much for your interest. See you later. He said, listen, through our courting intermediary, came back, hey, listen, he's coming to Melbourne anyway. He lives in Perth at the moment. COVID has given him a window. He's desperate to get out of Perth and have a chat. Just have half, like, just sit in a room with him, have a coffee, maybe have a meal with him. What are you going to lose? He's a guru. He'll help connect the dots, right? Even if you don't work with him. That happened in like, I think it was like the 15th, 16th of December, something like that. I mean, I think partly he's brilliant <laughs> salesperson. <laughs> partly on top of that, I think. What he said was really interesting. He switched it away from, I think he quickly realized it wasn't just a financial conversation. And he said, if you want to go on a journey with us and you don't have to, because you guys are self-funding, you got plenty of cash, you know, you can do it your way. But what if I was to tell you I can save you 30 years? And he put it into years and that got my attention. I went, 30 years. I'm not a young buck. 30 years is something. <laughs> so... That began a conversation around, wow, what would that look like? So he showed us how the Loxatan group, because he was then part of the Loxatan group, Alamis had told to Loxatan, and what they did. And I said, well, this group is a Goliath, right? We're talking a few billion dollars in sales. And I said, how are they going to take a brand that's tiny and do anything meaningful with it and even be interested in it? He kind of unveiled the way that Loxatan do brand, which is, in my opinion, out of the big companies it's quite unique. They keep the heart of the brand in, they keep the founders in, they, they're they kind of like a founder-led story that's just gone crazy versus a global multinational that's kind of pointed the head of Reebok at the top or something, right? <laughs> so they're a very different approach. The original founders, Andre Hoffman and Reinhold Geiger are still, and the original founder of L'Occitane, who they teamed up with, are still part of L'Occitane. And that's 40 years on. Long story short, we were really engaged, which we did not think we would be. And we said, so is this a majority? What is this? And so he said, well, look, it's a majority, but you guys can still be in and still have really important roles and visions to bring and play in the business. And he started to unroll that and unmap, you know, map that out. And then in a crazy slow kind of courting moment, we sort of discussed that for nearly a year. 
And at several points during that process, we were like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. And then we would sort of work how maybe how it could work. It really was like courting and seeing whether we like each other was a big part of it and whether we felt we could work together. And then we got introduced into various individuals who one of them was Andre Hoffman, who is, is the CEO of L'Occitane, sits on the bottom of L'Occitane. Just really incredible people that you went, oh my gosh, these guys operate at a different level and can bring people into the business that can multiply our thinking that we never thought would be possible. Change the way you think about what you're doing. Reach a much sort of more profound space in the market much faster without having to do a lot of the things that we were having to do at the time, which is run parts of the business that we weren't particularly good at running. So that's, we stumbled really into it. Sean then had said, hey, listen, I watched, I've watched you since 2009. I've always thought you were something really interesting. I loved the reason why you got into the business. I said, look, I'm going to say some stuff that I believe. I can't stop saying it. I actually don't believe you can get everything you need out of a tub of cream. I think it's ridiculous. People think we can, right? And that people try and sell you that in the beauty industry. I think there's some profound things you can do that are free that will change the way you look. You know, And I said, I'm going to say those things because I believe them and I can't stop saying them. And he goes, yeah, well, that's fine. I said, but how will that affect other brands in the portfolio? <laughs> he said, well, you've just got to be you. And interestingly enough, we've been working with each other for over a year now as a L'Occitane company brand. Well, sorry, a year. We did a bit of work together before L'Occitane officially acquired us just to get us kind of ready for being part of L'Occitane Group. So actually in April this year, we were officially acquired by L'Occitane, but we've been in prep. I think we've been engaged for six months before that. Yeah, I was going to say you were engaged. Yeah, we're engaged. <laughs> you went through your engagement period yeah. and potentially living together. Potentially, <laughs> right. potentially, yeah. In fact, we were in some way, which is always a dangerous move, right? I know when I um, married my wife, I didn't live with her and I think it was, it was a good thing. Otherwise, I'm not sure I've, I would have closed the deal. <laughs> Again, when you can't see that far ahead, you just keep going. It's <laughs> You don't want to see that far ahead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't reveal all your cards too quickly. We um, Through that process, it's been very interesting because there's been lots of moments where you could go, I'm not sure if I want that founder voice. It's a little painful. We've got these ideas and some of them are commercial and some of them are just not. But to their credit, they have really lived true to their their commitment and kept us, you know, focused us when we needed focusing, but allowed us to impart and bring the vision of why we started this journey in the first place. Look, I think I started this podcast earlier talking about this is the dream that many entrepreneurs had. And while you guys didn't start your brand with that dream, I think there's a lot of our audience and we talk to people every day that they actually start brands with the intention of selling them as quickly as possible. And that isn't the journey that you took, but I do think that you've got some nuggets of knowledge that we would like to explore. And that is, you know, knowing what you know now in the time that you've had with your brand and going through an acquisition, I think a lot of our audience does want to know, what would you do the same? What would you do different 20 years ago in order to set yourself up for that acquisition? That's a tough one. I think the first thing is our focus. There's several little keys to success along the way. I think focus is really important. I think we spent too long playing in the Australian market and should have got to North America much faster and done something more profound in North America. I think that helps 
but you have to do it right. So you have to have resource. So the, the interesting thing about North America, particularly in uh, bricks and mortar, is that you can't kind of go lightly. Uh, someone said to me a little while ago, they've been very successful. They've successfully gone bankrupt in North America. And I think it's a Goliath and you need, you know, you launch into Alta, all of a sudden you need $3 million worth of staff. Otherwise, you don't work in Alta. You're making $50 million in sales and spending $53 million in supporting the sales. I do think focus is really important. Don't spread yourself too thin. I think the biggest thing of all, though, is you can't give up. If you've got a way out, you're doomed. We didn't have a way out. We were all in. So it was like that scene in Gattaca where they're swimming out to the ocean and there's no way back. We didn't have a way back. We'd passed the point of no, no return. We just had to figure out how to make it work. And I think that's probably the biggest thing, no matter what you're doing, whether you're building to hold or building to sell, you have to be willing to flex and take a different path that you may not have thought, but don't give up. You don't have a B plan because B plans are going to let you down. I often said to my brother, I'm so glad we don't have a trust fund. I would have been out a long time ago. <laughs> It's my backup plan. I, and so we didn't have one. We we sold the house. We sold sold the dog. We just we went all in. You still have the wife though, right? The wife stayed. So we, yeah, I, I kept my wife, but only marginally. Uh, <laughs> I think if someone had offered me a good price. No, I, I can't. <laughs> but I think that when you're looking to sell, the other thing that's going to be important is try and implement solid ERP backend processes as soon as you possibly can. My dad said, look, we were looking to implement an ERP. He said, look, get SAP on board now. Now, that was a huge expense for us. We were like turning over, I don't know, like $5 million and we spent $150,000 on an ERP system. It was mental. But it meant that our quality of data and our ability to present as a business was super sound. And it meant great controls, great cash flow, great business the business side was sort of solid and that's important to a VC. Have a reason that you exist. I think it's really competitive, way more competitive today than it's ever been. You've got to figure out why you're doing what you're doing because that actually does count to a VC. People think about acquisition as a really numbers game, but it's actually highly emotional. People buy brands they love. And relationship driven. I mean, that's one of the big takeaways. And you said it early in the conversation as well, that you were building a relationship early on and that you were courting, but that is, I think we assume there's numbers and it is emotional and relationship. And you have to know that going in and find the right people that you want to work with and hold some of the same values and ethos that you have, or it's not going to work. There's the kind of prep for sale. There's then the process of sale. The process of sale is tough. Everything's designed to kick the tires and reduce value. I have great respect for our bankers. Bankers are not your friends. They present as your friends. They are not your friends. <laughs> On your side and their side. Just remember, they are here to do a transaction. That's the deal. There's a nugget right there. <laughs> and so love them, do the right thing by them, but structure a deal that doesn't steal 7% off the deal. You've got to structure a deal that works because it's going to cost, there's all sorts of hidden charges and hidden little things. You try and get someone who's been through a process and go, hey, look out for this. Make sure your mandate is super, super friendly. We've made those mistakes. And as soon as the transaction's done, you'll find that you'll still have great relationships potentially with your banker. But at the end of the day, they're very good at getting alongside you, making you feel special and fabulous until the deal's done. And then they're like, see you later. 
<laughs> and and that's their game, right? That's their game. I mistakenly made a mention once about bankers is they're like really highly paid real estate agents that brokers both sides of a deal. And I nearly got punched in the face by saying that. <laughs> I still kind of maintain that as the facts. Also note, don't compare bankers to real estate agents. Good. But don't, okay. Yeah, they don't like it. <laughs> and then when you're choosing a party, if you're staying in, the deal might look fabulous, but go on the basis of the relationship. Nothing's going to exist if the relationship doesn't work. I would trade a multiple of 10 for a multiple of five if the relationship was better because you'll never get the 10 if the relationship falls apart. If you're staying in, if you're selling out, it doesn't really matter. Just just go for the cash. <laughs> Jeremy, you have been such a delight to have on the show and lots of pieces of great information. And first, you know, congratulations on everything that you have achieved You've done an amazing job. The product is beautiful. Everything that you and your brother did is just fantastic and just so good to see somebody in the industry really make it and watch their dream come to life. So congratulations. And we do know that many of our audience want to reach out or want to ask questions or know more about the brand. If they want to know more about your story or how to reach out to you or the brand, where can they reach you? Send it straight to me, uh, Jeremy at GrowingAlchemist.com. Thank you, firstly, for those kind words. I feel like we're just beginning. I love this industry and I love what we do. So I'm hoping I've got a few years in me yet. And yeah, if you want to know more, you're on your own journey, feel free just to reach out, Jeremy at Grown Alchemist. It'll get to me directly and I'll look for emails and whatever I can pass on in our little journey. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.